And Terry says it's so, so it must be so. Okay, here we go. May the 12th, 2019. Excuse me. Lecture discussion number 64, I hope, on the book of Joel. And this is the special Mother's Day edition. I'll start right out with, uh, with, uh, John and Norma. John and Norma send us things. I, this is the first time I've opened it. Uh, it is some kind of Mother's Day uh, walnut roll. That's probably mine. Where shall I put it? <laughs> Over here. Let's see. What else do we have? We have. Ooh. We have another. No, it's not walnut. What is it? It's a poppy roll, so it's for poppy. That's also mine. So um, I will put it here in my pile. Let's see. Oh, plates. That's yours. I, I don't need plates. Napkins, oh, obviously. Never, never used a napkin ever. And then things we, we can give the children right now. Look at this. Milk chocolate coins, gold. Oh, my goodness. Lots of it. The best thing we can do for mothers is to make sure their children have as many of these as possible. We call that what? Retribution. That's right. Revengeance. Absolutely. And we're going to definitely do it. What else did John and Norma give us? Purple. Uh, it's, I don't know, tinsel garland. Obviously mine. I, so, so I'll be wearing that next week. Oh, and a, oh, a letter. Oh, happy birthday, Steve-O. How about that? So this is this isn't really for anybody but me, is it? Oh my gosh! Should have read that first. I get, built your hopes up. Uh, apparently, there's uh, 212 candles. He's also included in here. So John, thank you very much, and we appreciate it. All of that will be available in the buffet. And then I have a, another late birthday that came today here. This calls for a huge celebration. It's from Samantha. Hi, Samantha. Samantha used to come here and she visited a while back. And uh, she says, um, happy birthday, uh, the beginning of a great year. I, I don't have any more of those, I'm afraid. No, just kidding. Um, but she says something that I think um, is very valuable and important. Uh, I hope the softball fields are clearing there is lots of KFC and Diet Coke, um, as it should be. Keep leading. Thank you for backing up and catching us stragglers. And I was mentioning today, that is exactly what I do. I try to do that as much as I can. I realize that the information can be onerous, and I try to back up as often as I can, purposely. So, thank you, Samantha. I just wanted to read that so that everyone on the Internet as well knows that if you, if you don't get it the first time through, I usually do it 15 more times, sometimes 115 more times, kind of what I'm doing today. So, Okay, here we go again. Off we go again, I guess. It's a fine mess we find ourselves in, as usual, Ollie. That's only funny to people my age. It's a huge pile as Often it is to sift through, and there's not enough time to accomplish anything comprehensive, just so you know. 
And you may have noticed the relative ease with which questions are accumulated. You should be asking lots of questions. They come easy. Uh, you have to sift through them to make sure they're, they're focused correctly. But the questions accumulate and the subjects are introduced. And then is the accompanying difficulties, as uh, Samantha referenced. And that is reaching the comprehensive answers. So I'm going to give you lots of questions, uh, but the answers are very, very tough. That's just the process. And again, if you don't find the right answers, then I'm sorry, I said that wrong. If you don't find the right questions, if you don't ask the right questions, you're not going to get any answers ever. And so there you'll be completely lost, mostly asleep. So the question phase is critical, and I, I can't emphasize that enough. And with that said, the answers are always exhaustive. In other words, the answers just seem to go on and on and on and on and on, and they're exhausting to gather them. And if that's not happening to you when you're reading your Bible, this will get me in trouble, then you're doing it wrong. Sorry. Not really. Completely fake sorry. As you know, I try to play the trumpet. I told somebody uh, today that um, I've gotten to the place where the trumpet has become pretty easy for me now. To where I just go, wow, that's amazing. And I had a trumpet teacher tell me that if you cannot play two octaves on the trumpet, C to high C, effortlessly, then you're doing it wrong. Boy, was he wise and absolutely right. The same thing is true with the Bible. If you're not, if you're not going through this with all kinds of questions and just fighting to find the answers, then you're, you're in a place where things aren't working at all. You're, you're not making a sound. And that's unfortunate. Excavation is like archaeology, right? You have a hand trial and a little tiny brush, and you're trying to find these secrets of God. That's what this Bible is. It's God's secrets and his mysteries. And you're digging, and, you, and treasures are, are meticulously dug and hard to find, and you approach with great care. And that which is revealed is certain to be attached to more treasures, and, and you just can't stop finding treasures. Once you've got one and you keep digging around it, it just gets, it's, it's endless. And, and all of that's to be expected, because what are we doing? We are searching for, we're trying to find the mind of God. He's the one that wrote it this way. And I've had quite a many, that's actually a phrase, it's intentional, I've had quite a many in my so-called career rebuke me for repeatedly including the aforementioned, which is essentially what I just said, which is essentially lower your expectations disclaimer. You're going to spend, if you care about knowing what's going to happen, what he wants, why you're here, if that's something that you're trying to find, it's going to, again, you've got a little tiny paintbrush and a tiny little trowel. And you're at it for, for your whole life. So lower your expectations in this, with respect to definitive answers. In other words, you get any kind of answer, just celebrate. Because they're, they're done this way on purpose. The searching process is what he wants you to do. If you're not searching, you're not trying. And if you're not trying, what's the obvious question? Why not? 
means you don't care. Why don't you care? You've been given an incredible gift. In my humble opinion, which is the most humble of all humble opinions, as you know, uh, <laughs> I think it's catastrophically disastrous to tell people that the Bible is shallow or simple or easy. And if I did that in my so-called career, I expect the, the beating to come because it isn't true. If you do that as a teacher of scripture, you end up with this kind of crowd on Mother's Day. That's just how it is. We were talking about that earlier. We're doing this at 3.30 on Mother's Day and it's somewhat of a sunny day and no one comes here if it's snowing, if it's dark, if it's sunny, if it's a football day of any kind or a holiday if there's fishing. But that is just how it is. And if I were to tell you the opposite, if I were to get up here and do a whole bunch of really bad jokes, so wait a minute. But if I were to just do things that were simple for you, I am killing you. And I will be beaten for it, and I know it. The Word of God can be grasped by children. Such is true, but it is simultaneously infinite. And to repeat, that's to be expected from the creator of all things. He's the one that wrote it. How complicated are, is your body? How complicated is gravity? Whoever did this stuff wrote this book. Don't treat him with disdain. So we are currently at the fourth church Thyatira of the seven church prophecy of the revelation of Chapters 1 through 3. So there is a prophecy, as you know, if you've been coming or if you've been on the Internet listening, a prophecy in Revelations 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3. And Christ says to us, there's a great blessing if you can understand it. How easy is it to understand this? Bring your paintbrush and your trowel and get on your knees and here we go. And it's not easy to understand it, but there's a great blessing. What is the great blessing? Well, we find it as we excavate. And I chose Thyatira to begin. In other words, instead of beginning at church 1, I jumped to church 4. So I began this at the fourth church because of Jezebel. Jezebel, Christ calls Jezebel the evil, wicked Jezebel of Ahab in the Old Testament. He calls her the wife of Thyatira. So Thyatira, the church of Thyatira of the seven churches, is called the, the uh, husband of Jezebel by Christ himself. Which means what? It's so. How is it so? Jezebel is trampled by horses and eaten by dogs after she was pushed out of a window. But she looked good. She was all made up. And the dogs, I think, appreciated the condiment. But it uh, didn't work out for her. She was incredibly evil. If you've been here, you know that one of the things she did was kill children by the tens of thousands. Well, that's happening now. Probably had 50. I don't know how many children are killed. I know that 40% of all births of Africans, African Americans in New York City end in the death of the child. 40%. All these abortion clinics are put into the 
into the poorest sections of every city. This is Margaret Sanger's dream to exterminate the poor. You're exterminating the poor. God is not fond of that. To be euphemistic. So the one who searches the minds of living beings, he's the ancient of days. He says, I am the one, that, which means there's only one. I search your mind. Again, last week I asked, what is he searching the minds of living beings for? What's he looking for? He's looking for belief. Do you have any? He's going to search every thought you've ever had and find out if you've had belief. Belief in who? Belief in him. Anyway, he proclaims that he's going to kill the the followers of Jezebel inside the church of Thyatira. He's going to kill the, the followers with death, which is the second death. And as Jezebel was a literal Jezebel who killed children, Jesus Christ says he will kill the Thyatirian Jezebel children with death in the Great Tribulation. Let me put that on the board. Oh, I haven't said anything bad, by the way. Oh. Thyatira is going to go into the Great Tribulation. In other words, what's going is the children of Jezebel. So there they go. And that's the fourth church. So ask yourself, why are they going into the Great Tribulation? Thyatira in the Great Tribulation, which is the hour, the time of testing or trial. That's how it's identified by God, as well as the time of Jacob's trouble. But that's, they're going in, or so it says, which means it's, we've got to deal with that. How, what does it mean? And when you find out that Thyatira is going into the Great Tribulation, then those components, first thing you would want to know is, are you in the Thyatira church? And if you are, what should you do? That's right, get out. Every day, or every Sunday, I tell the children to run for their lives, which is kind of the joke here. But I would say the same thing to anybody in a Thyatira church. Run for your lives. Right now, the one who searches your mind, if you're in that church, is not finding any belief in all likelihood. So one, we've established that. And once you, you recognize that Thyatira is in the Great Tribulation, the children of Jezebel, as they are, as they're identified, we have to establish who they actually are. Once you have that, these components, naturally, logically, that leads to the sixth and seventh churches of the seven church prophecy. So if you figure this out, you get to go to the sixth and the seventh churches. Which is uh, kind of interesting, I think. That's Philadelphia and Laodicea. Philadelphia is promised by Jesus Christ that they will be kept from the hour of trial that will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So Philadelphia is told the opposite of Thyatira. They're kept out. Thyatira is in. Philadelphia is kept out. Laodicea has another interesting thing. I can spell Philadelphia. It's just long. And I didn't want to. 
I can spell it. I have it. I, I, it's right here, written down for me, by me. Philadelphia is promised by Jesus Christ that they will be kept from the hour of trial, whereas Thyatira is told the children of Jezebel will go into it. Now, what's the difference? Why is Philadelphia kept out? If you're going to pick a church, why not pick the Philadelphian church? That would make sense, wouldn't it? You'd have to identify it. Those... Philadelphia will be kept from this hour of tribulation that will come upon the whole world. And the wording here is to test those who dwell on the earth. So this is the great tribulation has an aspect of testing to it. That becomes very important as we go along here today. Testing for what? Philadelphia is betrothed because they kept Christ's word and did not deny his name. So if you are in a Philadelphia church, then you can tell that's the church of Philadelphia because they do not deny the name of Christ and they kept his word. His name, as you know, Isaiah 9-6, is given to us. The first name of Christ is called Wonderful. The second name of Christ is called Counselor. Some make the mistake of putting those together as Wonderful Counselor. No. First is Wonderful, second is Counselor. The third name of Christ is Mighty God. That's a shock today. The fourth name of Christ is Everlasting Father. And the fifth name of Christ is Prince of Peace or Prince of Life. So there you go. Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace or Prince of Life. Philadelphia obeyed his commandment. 1 John 3.23. Christ issues a commandment there. Whoops. I can spell Philadelphia. But apparently not John. Christ gives a commandment, 1 John 3, 23. And they believed Christ, his commandment to believe on the name of Jesus Christ. And therefore, because of that, Philadelphia is kept from the test of the tribulation. And the purpose of the trial or Jacob's trouble or the test is, is to give time to those who are in the hour of the test and the hour of the tribulation to repent of their unbelief. That's Revelation 2, 21 through 22. So I have a test and I have this element of belief and unbelief. Theme, if you will. All in this package here. Again, there's three purposes given in Scripture for the tribulation. The first, number one, primary thing is to turn the nation of Israel from unbelief to belief. Right now, the nation of Israel, there are, there are few. They estimate there's 150 to 200,000 Christian Jews in the United States, but there are millions of Jews in the United States, so that's a very small percentage. Um, there are Christian Jews in the nation of Israel, again, a very small percentage. The purpose of the tribulation in the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble, is to turn the nation of Israel from unbelief to belief. 
The second is to end the wicked ones, the wicked ones being the Antichrist, the false prophet. Put an end to them and temporarily an end to Satan, but he has a thousand year imprisonment before he's released. The third is, of course, always what Christ does, which is he comes to save all who will be saved. It's worldwide salvation or worldwide revival, whichever you wish. But it is, it is again going from unbelief to belief. So the children of Jezebel who go in, um, they have time in the tribulation to go from unbelief to belief, as is the case for Laodicea, which I'll get to in a minute. Laodicea, or right now, Laodicea is Revelation 3.16, and it is unsaved. So, once again, if you find yourself in a Thyatiran church or a Laodicean church, you are in an unsaved church. Thyatira shows, shows elements of salvation in some of it. Laodicea is completely devoid. Laodicea, Revelation 3.16, is unsaved. And the proof of this is Jesus says to them... Isaiah 55, 1. I should put that on the board because I'm not going to read it. Don't have time. Isaiah 55, 1 will help you. Revelation 3:18, That the people of Laodicea need to come to him to receive gold refined in fire. So what is gold? Pure gold. In other words, the gold has been refined. There is no impurity, no dross. It's all completely gone. It is completely pure. Not a, not a speck, a molecule of impurity in it. And they have to go to Christ to get this gold in order to be truly rich. And they're also to go to Christ to get pure white garments. And that takes us to Genesis 3.21, right? Adam and Eve. Pure white garments, salvation garments. And Christ says they need to do this so that the shame of Laodicea's nakedness. Now, there you go again. You're back to nakedness and ashamed or unashamed. That's Genesis 2.25. Adam were naked and unashamed, Adam and Eve. And then now we have Genesis 3.10 where they were naked and hid. They were naked and ashamed. So this nakedness and ashamed or nakedness and unashamed is uh, always joined together. So Christ says you've got to have pure gold and you have to have pure white garments. And if you don't, that your nakedness will be revealed. Which is not good for Laodicea. And Christ says also to the Laodicean church that they need eye salve. Implying that they're blind. In other words, they cannot see something. Something critical. What is it that they can't see? They cannot see who Jesus Christ really is. And if you don't know who he really is, then you're in desperate trouble. So he gives them, they need to come to him to get pure gold, pure white garments and eye salve. So that they will repent of their unbelief, Revelation 3.19. And there we are again. Laodicean, the Laodicean church, which is right now the dominant church of our time. There are more Laodicean churches than any other kind of church, and it's not even close. 
Laodicea is willfully blind to the name of Christ, John 1.23. Philadelphia knows what the name of Christ means. Laodicea, no clue. Willfully blind. They want to be blind. And the name of Christ, ultimately, as you study it, is the Godhood of Christ. So they do not believe that Christ has any Godhood in him at all. And, there, and, and Christ, therefore, says of them that they are miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what he says to them. And it is love to tell them so, frankly. And Laodicea has money. You can begin to think, who are the Laodiceans? They have money, and they think they are rich. They proclaim that they have need of nothing. They boast about how rich they are, and that makes them easy to identify. If you're going to a church that brags about how much money they've got, and they don't know who Christ is, you're in a Laodicean church. That's mostly for the Internet, but I get quite a few of them come here. And they're quickly disappointed in me. Yes, yay. I believe it. It is. It, I know they're described by God himself as miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and willfully so. And it is love to tell them, we're on the cliff here. And they're going over the edge. And if I don't yell something. You know, I started out yelling, hey, you're ugly. And I recognized that was probably not a good plan. Didn't seem to improve the, uh, never mind. But again, you can find them. They, they love money. They build incredible facilities. Uh, they talk about money all the time. They flaunt it. They say that the pastor needs to have tremendous wealth. And the pastors all have tremendous wealth. And he is not in, they do not believe him, and they do not believe in his name, uh, and Christ is not inside the church of Laodicea. He makes that clear, and he is. He says that he is outside of that church, knocking on the door, and they won't open the door. They're not interested in him being in their church. Because if he comes in their church, what's he going to do? He's going to change what they believe. And they don't want to believe what anything about him that is true. And so, again, they are miserable, naked, blind, wretched. And one of my oft-repeated uh, suggestions is to categorize the characteristics of a Pharisee. Make a list of what Pharisees do, and then go and do the exact opposite of that. And you'll have a pretty good life. And the same could be said of a Laodicean church. Go find out what one of these Laodicean churches believe, and don't believe it. Because they're wrong on almost everything. And you don't even know it. They even sound very Christian. But it's real easy to spot them again. They collect lots, bags of money. I was asked one time to go and sing in the choir at the Benny Hinn. I hate to pick on him, but gosh, does he deserve it. At the Benny Hinn, uh, what do you call these things that he did? Uh, rally. Thank you. Very good. And so uh, I'm supposed to go. And I didn't go because I had way too much fun talking to them about me singing in the choir, which is absolutely hysterical. And I wish I had gone. But they wanted pastors. They also have got this call from Sun Yet Moon's group. 
Unification Church out of Korea. They want pastors to come to these things because it validates. They wanted me to sit on stage. And I told the man that called, I said, you do not want me to sit on stage. I absolutely guarantee. Oh, sir, yes, we do, Mr. Cronster. We would really like you, Pastor Cronster. We would really like you. No, you do not want me. You pick anybody else but not me. And I had some people from this church that went because they thought that it would be fun to go and see. And they saw what was going on. They went around and collected. They had looked like popcorn baskets, but just in gargantuan ones. And so you had these huge cardboard buckets. And they were filled with money. Filled. Laodicea. He doesn't believe anything about Christ. He can sue me for that, but he doesn't. Not a thing. He is a complete mess. And yet people go there by the tens of thousands and give him more and more money for more and more houses and more and more airplanes. And it just gets horrifyingly bad. Figure out what he's doing and never do it. We are in the Laodicean dominant time. Though I'm going to argue for concurrency with regard to this prophecy that is in Revelation 1 through 3. In other words, concurrency means that Thyatira and Philadelphia are, are side by side with respect to the tribulation. Thyatira goes into the hour of the tribulation. Philadelphia is kept from the tribulation. Both, in a sense, are connected to the same event at the same time. So there has to be concurrency. They have to exist at the same time in order for that to be true. So there isn't a succession here. There's a simultaneous aspect to it. So how does that work? That's something we have to solve. Very difficult to solve. And that's going to be a factor as we move along in the road to solving Revelation 1 through 3. The implications of Revelation 2.22 and Revelation 3.10 are far-reaching. That is, Philadelphia out, Thyatira in. That's a big mystery. Anyway... A brief diversion now. By brief, I mean really, really long, maybe a year. I'm going to go off track here because last Sunday, the other Daniel wanted to get together to talk about uh, Matthew 4, Luke, Mark 1, and Luke 4. Those are the three tests of Christ, which is how it fits in here. Christ is given three tests by Satan, incredibly complicated. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll just, I'll. Go and make a really quick thing in a couple pages, and I'll get it in. And 20 pages later, here it is. <sighs> this is the testing of the pure goldness. How's that for a word? Goldness, like Jezebelian, Jezebelness. I can use these words at whim and at, at will, and I don't need to v- validate them. I just... Keep doing it until it becomes accepted by Webster. I'll have to look to see if I'm in yet. Mm. The testing of Christ at Matthew 4 by who? Satan. Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4, the same event. Satan comes to test Christ for the percentage of gold that he is. So that's what's happening there. So note the connection between the Thyatiran, Laodicean, Philadelphian. 
and all of the seven churches, frankly, of Revelation 1 through 3. Just in case you're about to to object to the relevancy here. I will admit that this falls under the heading of throwing two birds at the one in the bush. I got that. But I'm going to try it anyway. So let's see what we can do. There's only one source from which you can get pure gold. You cannot get pure gold. You may go to a gold and diamond guy downtown, good luck with that, and he will give you gold that he'll claim has such a level of purity, but it is not pure gold. Because pure gold cannot have any, at the molecular level, the micro level, the quantum level, it cannot have any component in it, any particle that is not gold. So pure gold, when we talk about pure gold, it's absolute purity. There's only one source from which to receive pure gold. That is why he says to Laodicea, you have to come to me. You need to come to me because I'm the only one that's got it. I am pure gold. And, and, and he's the only one with, that has white garments, that can make white garments. You have to have absolute pure gold and you have to have absolute white garments and you need the eye salve. Revelation 3.18. No one else ever has pure gold or is pure gold. Logically, then, we have what's called in Christianity, why we're hated so much, the exclusivity of Christ, right? If he is the only one that has pure gold, and you need pure gold, and he is the only one that has, can make white garments, can get a garment completely, totally, absolute white, then he's exclusive. He's the only one that can save. I hope that's logically obvious to you. No one is saved except by the only one who is pure gold and will give you pure gold. And the only one who is pure white and will give you a white garment. And he has also, he is the only one who has the blood of life. There is no other access, no other person, no other thing that has it. Nobody else can save. It's only logical. It's mathematical. You have to get away from your emotional thinking and become a mathematical thinker. That's what the Bible says for us to do. So he is absolute God and he is sinless and he has life blood. He is the only source of life blood. No one can be saved except through Christ. Because of that, he is the sole source. There is no other place to go to get salvation. People hate that. But it's the truth. If you're in a Laodicean church, I don't say that. They'll never say that. They got their money. They're rich. They never say what I just said. But it's illogical otherwise. No other person has life blood. And you can't purchase life blood. You can't purchase it. Because the cost is infinite. How long do you have to work to produce enough to buy something that is infinite? You can't. It's impossible. The infinite cost is per drop, but that's not even right. The infinite cost is per cell, but that's not even right. The infinite cell is per molecule. Adam, lifeblood has nothing but life in it. Pure gold has nothing but pure gold in it. 
white garments are only white. And, and I can't give you my oil. You must go get your own oil. Matthew 25, 1 through 13, parable of the virgins. Some virgins go to the other virgins and say, give me your oil. I can't. You have to get your own oil. Where do you go to get the oil? In this case, the blood or the garment or the gold. It's all the same uh, doctrine. There is no place to go but Christ. So just think of it as I can go to a mall and I want to I want to get some life. I can't buy it. It's too expensive. I can never earn it. There's not enough money. It's infinite. I got all these stores in the mall or in the strip mall. There's only one of them that has what I can get, what I need for life, because there's only one of them that can do it. Nobody else can do it. What do they have? They have counterfeits. And people are mad. How come you won't give us the counterfeit? Why can't we have a counterfeit lifeblood? Because you don't have lifeblood. You have death blood. Your blood is dead that you just bought. If you can buy it, you make them rich. That works for them. But you've got death blood. And Christ says, I, w- I, will, I will that none perish. He wants all who come to live. Who, whosoever comes to Christ will be given the infinite life blood, the pure gold, the white garment, and nobody else has it. You can't possibly get it. Every other garment is filthy, he says so. All the other gold is contaminated. All the other blood is dead blood. And this, what I just said, is the underlying, if you wish, the underpinning of the seven church prophecy of Revelation 1 through 3. And if you understand that, You're in really good shape. Okay. Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4. Daniel's fault. Everybody say, thank you, Daniel. Yeah, that's right. Wonderfully done. It's the same subject. It's just in a very much... uh, As you should expect, the Bible consistently brings us the message that will save you. Because that's what God wants to do. Say that? Mark 4. I'm going to start at 3.16. Mark 3.16. Oh, did I say Mark? Mark Mark 1, Matthew 4. Actually, Matthew 3.16. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Now, this is, he makes sure that he is baptized. He goes under the water in the exact place that the axe head from Elisha, from 2 Kings 6, where the axe head came up from and the branch was thrown in. This is where the Ark of the Covenant went into the Jordan River during the time of Joshua when they were invading Jericho. So that's the spot that God chose. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, this is a behold, so that means something amazing is about to happen. The heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God. So this is the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is coming down in a circular pattern. The Holy Spirit doesn't look like a dove. How come I have a concussion? And suddenly a voice from heaven saying, Came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So I have the son, the spirit and the father here. Or if you wish to say it the way the 
Jews will say it, I have the angel of God, which is Christ. I have the spirit of God, Lord God, which is the Holy Spirit. And I have the Lord God, which is the Father. All the same, all equal, three parts, triune, not parts, three of the whole. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Your Bible might say tempted. Stop with the temptation. Nonsense. It can't be tempted temptation because then he wouldn't be pure gold. If you're tempted, that means your mind has already committed the sin in your mind, but you haven't manifested it in the body yet, so you may be able to resist the manifestation. You may not do what you're thinking of, but you're tempted because you thought of it. He says it's not in his mind. Jeremiah 33, 35. Not in my mind. There is no temptation. This is a testing to see if he is pure gold. Who needs to find out if he's pure gold? Does Satan need to find out if he's pure gold? It's helpful to Satan if he knows. We'll get to that in a minute. But who needs to know that he's pure gold? Thyatira, Laodicea. We need to know. So he's going to prove it. That's what's going on here. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. Oh, my gosh, that is incredibly powerful right there. we got to figure out what that means. It's not easy. If you think he was hungry, he wasn't hungry. Okay, he was hungry, but not the hungry you think is hungry. He has a different hungry than you. And it's not a country. Now, when the tempter, not a tempter, a tester, came to him, if or since, some will say since, either one will probably work. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. That's un- unbelievable. Very different, very mysterious, extremely complex. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds. From the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. Again, amazing. What he's talking about there. If you think we're talking about bread and stones, you're wrong. And if you're thinking about angels catching Christ, you're wrong again. It's not what we're talking about. Not what they're talking about. I have the wisest being ever created by God, and I have God himself, and they are together. That's amazing. They are smarter than us. Duh. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, or depart from me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Note the two beholds. The beholds, the angels came to him and ministered to him. Is this the first time angels ministered to Christ? Answer that. If so, why is this the first time? If it is the first time, why is it the first time? Why is this a behold? 
What did the angels do when they came? What were they thinking? And that's a later question. Luke has the first test first, the third test second, and the second test third with respect to Matthew's order. That becomes important. In other words, Matthew has got bread and stone. Luke has got bread and stone. Matthew goes to uh, cast yourself down. Uh, Luke goes to um, kingdoms. So they're, they're not in order. They don't correspond in order. That becomes very important. What does it mean? Luke also brings time, a moment in time, an opportune time into the discussion. Luke also reveals that Satan lied to Christ, which that should not surprise anybody. I'm not going to read Mark other than to say that Mark brings animals into it, and we'll get to that in a second. So let's go to Luke really fast. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tested for 40 days by the devil. In those days he ate nothing, and afterwards when they had ended the 40 days, he was hungry. Again, incredible. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone... To become bread. Notice the difference? Command these stones. Command this stone. But Jesus answered him saying, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. I hope you're suspicious. Therefore, if you will if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And um, and again, Mark includes the wild beasts of all the things that were there that I've just read to you in Luke and Matthew. And there's more. I'm getting in all because I've got to watch the time. But all of that stuff, Mark, he says wild beasts. Christ was with the wild beasts. That's amazing. I have God in the flesh. Luke said God in the flesh loves his animals. Let me put it this way. Second Adam. He's called the second Adam in Scripture in 1 Corinthians. It's the last Adam. So I have the first Adam and the last Adam. And Mark says the last Adam, when he's in this time of testing, one of the great evidences of who he is, is that he has animals all around him. So what did he do with the animals? How many animals do you think went around Christ? All of them. Everyone that could reach him, they're no different than the people. If I'm an animal and that's God, I'm headed that way. How come? What if I got a bad leg? Maybe I got parasites. I got all these animals. You start thinking about all those animals, and you know that Adam the first had all these animals around him. So there's this positioning again of Adam and Christ. Adam named each one of them individually. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, hundreds of thousands in all likelihood. What did Christ do? Did he rename the animals? What did he do? Well, this takes us to the white stone of Revelation. Pergamos. Pergamos. 
didn't spell it right. And the new names. I'm going to erase it because I know it's not right. I'll just write Perg. It keeps people from attacking me. <laughs> Christ says that he gives everybody that is saved a new name. That's what I'm asking. What's he doing with these animals? Okay, let's pound out the most obvious of the obvious questions. The lowest fruit here. This is the easy stuff. Okay, I'm going to leave the hard stuff off so you know you got something easy here. Everybody's going to get an A. Remember, thank you. Remember, last we left off last week with the cult prostitute and the Pharisees ready to execute her. And they wanted Christ to lead the execution. And instead, he puts his finger in the dust. He does it twice. That's the finger of God writing twice in the dust. Okay? So you got that. So I have Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15:45. He's now in the desert, in the wasteland, no food, no water. The first Adam was in paradise. He had all kinds of food from every tree and he could eat freely. Do you see what's going on here? Matthew 4, Genesis 3. So left off the bat, we see the positioning again, this juxtapositioning, this side-by-sideness of Adam and Christ. And everybody watching this would know that this is very similar to what happened to Adam. Animals, tests, all of this stuff is the, is the same. And not necessarily perfectly the same, but who's watching this? The only ones watching this in the wilderness. You got anybody out there? No, all I have is fallen angels, Satan and his fallen angels, and unfallen angels. And animals. And again, Christ is not feared by the animals. There's no fear there. Fear becomes important. So, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, obviously being recalled and repeated in, in a fashion, in a form. Now, Satan says three things. He makes three proposals. Turn stones into bread. Throw yourself down and worship me. And none of what he said is random or arbitrary. He had planned this. He saw Christ probably from birth. He absolutely did. I can guarantee you that because I have Judas. But anyway, he's, he's watched Christ now. For over 30 years, and Satan knew that at some point he is going to do to Christ what he had done to Adam and the woman. He has these traps that he has thought of. He's had a lot of time to think about it. And it really is true because he went through the trial of Genesis 3 where he's condemned. But just as Satan's brood, the Pharisees, they're going to bring planned test traps to Christ endlessly. They won't stop it. Satan brought test traps to Christ. He also did it to Adam and Eve. When I say test traps, I mean they're tests and they're traps. Now, Satan did not say this. He did not say, make bread from dust. He said, make bread, take, make stones into bread. So I ask you the question, what's the difference between a stone and dust? Another question, how large are the stones? As you know, Jewish capital punishment was, capital judgment, execution was by stoning. So stones have an execution judgment attachment. So he could have said it, 
make death into bread. Or make bread from dust. Make the dust into bread. And again, the finger of God with the prostitute is riding in the dust. And again, Luke recounts that Satan likely selected out a single stone from the stones. He said, make this stone into bread. Command it. Satan picked up a stone, if that's correct, from the stones. Why would he do that? And immediately we can note Ezekiel 28 now shows up, doesn't it? What is Ezekiel 28? Put it on the board for the... It's not for you. You all know what Ezekiel 28 is. This is for the Internet. Ezekiel 28 is the precious, precious stones of the covering. The covering of what? The Eden of which Satan was king. So he picks up a stone. Stones to Satan mean something completely different. They, they, to him, they are elements of his kingdom. Ezekiel 28 describes the precious stones of the covering of the kingdom of, of Satan. Satan was adorned with precious stones, Ezekiel 28:13. He is full of beauty. He's perfect in wisdom. Satan walked through the precious stone Eden, the mineral Eden, as the anointed king, the cherub, the king of the precious stone Eden, the fiery stone Eden. He is the king of it, Ezekiel 28 tells us that. That Eden is gone. Now, well, we've talked about that many times. Where did it go and when did it go? And it's replaced by a new Eden, if you wish, an organic Eden. And who's the king of that Eden? Adam. Adam was the anointed king of the second Eden. Albeit fallen, Adam is. But he is covered by the garment made by God. That's good news for him, isn't it? Clearly, this is the referring to the two Edens. Make the stone into bread is, a, is dealing with the two Edens, Ezekiel 28 and Genesis uh, 2 and 3. And both kings of Eden have fallen. Genesis 3.17 through 19 is the fall of Adam. Ezekiel 28.15 and Isaiah 14 is the fall of Satan. So the king of the organic Eden, what happened to his body? It returned to dust. Adam's body was made from dust, Genesis 2-7, and when he died, it went back to dust. Satan clearly saw the creation of Adam, and he heard it. And he is the king of the mineral Eden that is no longer there for some reason. Again, that has to be resolved. So the king of the mineral Eden, however, at the trial of Adam, Eve, and Satan, the king of the mineral Eden was condemned to do something. What was it? Adam's body returned to dust. What was the other told? What was Satan told? He would eat dust. Dust, dust. Oh, that's probably coincidence. So you got this eating component again. Eating is the central theme of Genesis 2 and 3. We have the eating, the eating, the eating. The finger in the dust. The king of, of all kings. Jesus Christ, the, he, he, the, he is the finger of God. He is the invisible God made visible, made phys physical. He is the God-man. He touches the dust with his finger. He writes in the dust, John 8. He made lice from dust. 
covers all of Egypt in lice made from dust. That's Exodus 8, 16 through 17. So the obvious question becomes, did he cover the Pharisees in dust who were trying to execute that prostitute? Because you all have to say this. Why did those old men drop that stone first? Old men are usually the hardened. But people say, well, they're the wise ones because they understood the Look, old men are usually the dumb ones. They're hard, evil people. They don't get smarter if you're evil. You only get smarter if you're wise. I don't mean that as an insult to all old people, because being one, I have sympathy for us. But dumb doesn't get better with age, nor does evil. So why did those old Pharisees drop it first? What made them drop those stones? Was it they felt bad for the prostitute that they're trying to kill? Is that your position? They felt guilty for because God exposed them? These are Pharisees. They are violent, vile, vipers, serpents, evil, depraved people. Why did they drop their stones? They want to kill that woman so bad. They didn't do it. Why not? It's political. They're worried. They don't worry. They kill people. They could have killed her and blamed him, but they didn't. Why not? Now, Matthew 4. Satan says, we're going to make it really fast now, convert mineral into organic. And convert may not be a good word here. Modify might be a better word because everything is made of minerals, isn't it? You're all minerals. What do you think we're worth? About 14 bucks if they boil it down? So, convert mineral to organic. That's not a great way of saying it, but just we'll live with it today. Satan is addressing in this phrase the differences between something that is edible and that which is not. Because the Bible says that God made all of this stuff for Adam. And it was pleasant to see, and it was what? Good for food. And it was from trees, so it was good for food. Genesis 2, 9. And out of the ground... The dust of the ground, it says, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So look again. What did he do to the mineral Eden? He didn't destroy it in the sense he used it as material. Satan know that. Obviously, this is the underlying issue of Satan's first test. Genesis 2.7 and 2.9. If you are the Son of God, create a living physical body from dust. That would be what I'd expect. But that's not what Satan said. Because why wouldn't he say that? If you are God, the Son of God, go ahead, take that dust and create a living body out of it. Do it again. I'm here. I saw it the last time. Do it again. But Satan didn't do that. He reduced it to food. Bread. Why didn't he say, make a body? Because who's watching? Lots of people watching. Not people. Lots, every angel is watching. He does not want to repeat what God did with the body of Adam. He wants to make food. Command the stones to become bread. Overwhelmingly, Bible commentators attach this to the hunger of God. They're saying, Christ is hungry, so he wants to make a pizza. <sighs> Matthew 4.2 says, Jesus, God, was hungry, as does Luke 4.2. 
Jesus did not eat for 40 days. The second Adam did not eat. Let that sink in for a second. The first Adam did what? He ate. The second Adam did not eat. Can't be immaterial. How do they know that God, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, was hungry? How do they know that? Was Mark there? No. Was Luke there? No. How do they know? Who told them that Christ was hungry? Holy Spirit? Or did Christ himself tell them? They're witnesses to the testimony of Christ. So why does Christ say, I was hungry? The God in the flesh was hungry. Gosh, take a hold of that. Let me say it this way. He is God. We are not God. Everybody says, duh, men. That seems simple, but just start reading the commentators. Most of them fail badly. If Christ did not eat, would he have died of starvation? He went without food for 40 days. You start to get weak, right? God gets weak. Omnipotent God becomes weak after what? 42 days? 43 days? How long before he dies of starvation? What do you think? Fortunately, he didn't die of starvation. Because the angels brought grapes to him and they ministered that way. They brought him, they brought him pizza. Is that the number one view out there? Pretty close. I made a little mockery of it, but that's about what you get. That passes for academic uh, Bible school. If Christ did not drink, did he die from thirst? Could he die from thirst? Can he die from hunger? Can he die from hunger? No. You see this hunger and thirst set together. He says, thirst from the the cross, as you know. He's in a desert, doesn't eat. Why doesn't he eat? Does he need to eat? Please say no or yes. Please don't. Will he die from hunger? Here's another easy question. How long can God live without eating or drinking? Again... That may appear to be a basic question, but has seldom been considered by Bible scholars. They do not want to deal with it because at its core, it is the God-man. It is the hypostatic union discussion, and no one wants to deal with that, which makes it something to avoid by all the religious professionals that have lots of money and run the Laodicean church. Try to find a commentary, I dare you, on Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4, that takes it on. Nowhere you won't find it. They assume that Christ is starving and he has to have food. So that's why Satan said, make that stone into bread. Because Satan Satan could tell that he was famished. Why didn't Satan go get him something to eat? Delivery? Get a tip? Have a nice car? Little sign on top? Got to pick up the pace. Israel is the firstborn of God, Exodus 3.22. That's what they're called. And they were led into the wilderness by God, Deuteronomy 8.2-3. Forty years to be tested. Israel was allowed to hunger, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 8, and fed with manna. Bread from heaven. And it says that Israel did not know this bread from heaven, nor did their fathers know the bread from heaven. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 as his rebuke to Satan's test trap. Man shall not live by bread alone. That's Deuteronomy 8. That is a discussion of Israel in the wilderness. Christ is the pure white bread descending from heaven that 
Israel was to go out and gather. There's your understanding. What other pure white bread is there? There is none. This is the only one. Go gather this one. Well, this guy's got counterfeit bread. It won't work. I'm going to die with that bread. And the one who is the pure white bread says, Man does not live by bread, but by every word of the mouth of God. So the mouth of God brings life. You ever see the picture of the fingers? Sistine Chapel? Because they had some understanding that the finger of God was pretty special. That it made life out of dirt. But the Bible says that what? It is the word of God that is the life of man. Jesus is the firstborn, the first and the last, the timeless one. He's the mind that conceived time. All time is inside of him. He defines life. He is living because he is the life. How does he define life when he says life comes from the mouth of God? Satan presents a food test to the last Adam. Why did Satan pick up stones? He could have picked up sticks or sand or insects maybe, dust if you will, but he doesn't. He picks up a stone. He says, command the stones to become bread. Speak the stones into bread. Notice that? Don't grab it and turn it into bread. Speak it into bread. Command it to be bread. And Jesus doesn't do that. He elevates the issue into the creation of life immediately. Because he knew that Satan did not say, make dust into life, a body. Christ takes it there anyway. Life is not physical. Life, living, is that which comes out of the mouth of God, or if you will, the breath of God. That's what life is. The dust, the minerals form the body, but the life comes from the breath of life. Genesis 2.7, Genesis 7.15, Ezekiel 37.5.6, Acts 17.25. Your life does not come from your food. It comes from his mouth, his breath. And was this new information for Satan? He didn't expect it. And who's watching? What do the unfallen angels do? Did Satan not witness the breathing of life into all things? Again, Acts 17.25. Didn't see that? Or is the process invisible? Was he not able to see it because it's invisible? Was it not revealed until Moses revealed it? Did Satan not understand? Did he not comprehend how these living beings became living beings? Does he not know what life is with respect to humanity and animals? Did Satan think man and animals were merely singular physical creatures without existence? I think that's unlikely. But then why did Satan repeat the existence lie from Genesis 3? Because that's what he's doing. I'll explain that in a second. Speak the stones into bread is not, is not, speak nothingness into something with entity or substance. It's not that. And Genesis 1.1 is nothingness into material. Satan didn't want that. Why isn't that the first test? Luke 4 is Satan lying at will. 
Just like the brood that lies in Matthew 7, 22 and 23. I brought that up last week. All these people say, aren't we the ones that cast out these demons and did these miracles? And No, you didn't do any of that. You lying pieces of junk. They are the brood of Satan. And they're, depart from me, says the same thing to them that he says to Satan. That tells you who they are. Quit thinking that there are people that will come to Christ and say we did miracles. Yet they didn't. They're lying. We know that. It's obvious. Don't put money in their popcorn boxes. Makes me mad. Not because I need the money. You know, it's not like, never mind. Satan was lying to God, and both were ordered to depart from me, away from you, Matthew 7, 22, 23. Those are solemn words when Christ says them to somebody. But Satan shows Jesus, who is omniscient, the kingdoms in a moment of time. Wow. He says, all this authority I give to you. That's a ridiculous lie. Satan would not give it to anyone, certainly not to Christ. Jesus Christ is already the possessor of all things. He already has all the kingdoms. That's Melchizedek. That's Genesis 14. That's the king of Jerusalem, the God most high, the high priest. Satan can claim and did claim that he had possession of the kingdom, but he didn't. It's not true. He says, if you give him, give it to, he says, I'll give it to you, Jesus Christ. But all you have to do is worship me, which is fall down and worship. See the connection between the next two? How that worship for Satan, worshiping Satan worked out for Eve, just as an afterthought, just asking that. Obviously, it's a lie. Christ could fall down and worship all day. He's not going to give him anything. He wants the audience to see. He's still battling the fall of the angelic host. It illustrates the ignorance of Satan as to the person of Christ. Satan has no idea who Christ is. Figures it out. But in Matthew 4, Luke 4, he didn't know. He does not know who Jesus Christ is. See, that, that's odd, you know, so you see it all fit. Satan effectively is saying to God himself, fall down and worship me, whom you created, whom you gave existence out of nothing, not dust, out of nothing. You spoke the angels into existence from nothing. You took dust from what you spoke into existence and made man. But why didn't he say, make an angel from nothing? He didn't. He goes, stones and bread. That seems really... Doesn't make any sense. But then Doug. I'm completely out of time. God says, you shall worship the Lord your God only, which means you shall worship me. Satan didn't know that was the me. Let's ask this. Can Christ fall down? Satan didn't know that he's dealing with the infinite God. Can the infant, can infinity fall down? What is falling down? Submitting to what? You can do this. Say it loud. Say yes, thank you. Submitting to gravity. Who made gravity? Who controls gravity? Satan thinks that Christ is subject to gravity. In case you think Satan is amazing, he is amazing. But I know that Christ can't fall down. How does an infinite one fall down? Can the angels catch God if he were to somehow fall? Throw himself off, which is the same thing. He's going to fall down and he's going to fall down. We're both fall downs, right? 
says, jump off. How heavy is infinity? How many angels are going to take to catch him and, and hold him up? Obviously, Satan doesn't know what he's saying. Satan clearly is raising the... They can't catch God if he were to fall down. They couldn't lift him up if he, if he were to be down. He wouldn't do that because it's gravity. Satan clearly is raising the mineral Eden and the organic Eden, changing from one to the other and why it was done. So those two are being discussed here. That means that Satan is bringing in Genesis 3, which is the trial of Satan in the lake of fire. He shall give his angels charge. That's what Satan quotes. Ultimately, it's a lie that God would interfere with the free will of Christ to take his own life. Consider the irony there. The angels coming to minister reflects that they figured out the solution to the angelic fall. But I hope you can see that when he says to Christ, do you have the free will to kill yourself? And his argument is, is if you try, the angels will stop you. And now where are we? We're at the crucifixion, aren't we? How does Christ die? It isn't the angels stop him. But he's implying that the angels can stop infinity from falling. Angels can lift infinity. And angels can stop omnipotence from sacrificing his own life, taking his own life. Because no one can take it from him, right? Can't be done. Just like there's no pure gold, there's no white garment, there's no eye solve except from him. Okay, that was fun. As I define fun, most of you endured it. If you have any issues with how long that was, whose fault was it? Daniel's. That's right. Daniel is standing right here in case you haven't identified him. <laughs>